Femfas. 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 Welcome to the Fem Files, a history of iconic women. We're Josie, Ellen, and Becky, three gals with a passion for female figures in history and immersing ourselves in popular culture. So we thought we'd do something productive with our lockdown and bring those two things together in a new podcast. Each week we'll look at the lives of two women, one from history and one from the present day whose lives interlink. So how did we find ourselves making a podcast and remotely, I might add? Well, we all have history and studied it in some form or other. I studied art history otherwise known as the cool girls version of history. I was a loser who just did normal history at uni. I also studied history of art and I'm a self-confessed holder of celeb anecdotes. So we thought it'd be fun to mash up these two. Ellen does have some fantastic stories from her time on the periphery of London's acting scene, but these are not all suitable for public consumption. And obviously, in a perfect world, we'd all be recording this together. But as it stands, we're all in our respective homes, being Bojo's rules. So sorry if there's a few muffled mics going on. We'll do our best. We should perhaps state our undergrad history degrees completed many years ago now by no means makes us experts. So what you're about to hear are purely our opinions. Yeah, we are just history dorks with a passion for pop culture. Right. So should we get started? This week we'll be discussing Anne Boleyn, former queen and one of Henry VIII's famous wives, and Meghan Markle, who was married to Prince Harry and was a working member of the royal family until her departure in March 2020. We'll start by getting a bit of background on the two women we'll be looking at today. Becky, you've been looking at Anne Boleyn. Can you give us a quick overview? She is a fascinating queen to look at and we chose her because she was significant in so many ways. She was not born to be queen, but rose through pure ambition to the top spot. And Henry's infatuation with her started a chain of events which would result in England breaking with the Catholic Church in Rome. She was also the first English queen to be executed, and she gave birth to one of our greatest monarchs of all time, Elizabeth I. I know so many people are obsessed with Anne Boleyn, us included. Why do you think that is? Her life is just such a roadcoaster ride worthy of any Daily Mail article. She is an endlessly fascinating person and I think this is because her life is full of extremes. She experiences great highs and also terrible tragedies. She was anything but boring. And I guess you just have to admire her sheer ambition, keeping Henry waiting for six years to finally seal the deal. She was a woman who understood how to wield her feminine power, and that gained her so much in life, but it also ultimately led to her downfall. So more of that later. Josie, in contrast, you've been looking at Meghan Markle. Can you give us a quick summary about her life? Well, Rachel Meghan Markle, otherwise known as Meghan Markle, ex-Duchess of Sussex, is probably best known for marrying Prince Harry a supposed heartthrob and last hunky royal since Will's lost his hair, dashing the dreams of many wannabe princesses across the nation. Including me! Oh, not me too. Him in a military uniform. (laughs) (laughs) However, at the end of March this year, Meghan and Harry left their royal lives behind. And this was only one year and seven months after their very high-profile wedding. Since announcing their plan to step down as royals this January, 
Megan has already reprised her role as an actress in Disney's latest documentary film, Elephant. Now, has anyone seen it? Because I got a Disney subscription for lockdown. And so far, I have only watched Freaky Friday and Princess Diaries, which I know is very highbrow. I love those films. They are such staples of our childhood, I feel. Uh, Unfortunately not. I don't think I've actually ever seen anything with her in. JC, I understand that before marrying Harry, Meghan had carved out a career in her own right as an actress. Yeah, she's probably best known for her role as Rachel in the TV series Suits. She also had a number of other smaller roles, but some of these proved to be rather controversial once she entered the public eye. In particular, the made-for-TV film Random Encounters. I don't know if anyone saw that. Oh, is that the infamous one with the steamy scene? Yes. Uh, I've not seen it, but I believe there's a rather naughty scene which shocked many royal traditionalists when it resurfaced after her and Harry started dating. I'm also pretty sure, guys, that she was in an episode of 90210 performing a similar act. Um, For all the millennials out there, you've probably seen it. Uh, I must confess I haven't. But moving away from tawdry millennial chat, what do we think links these two women? Why have we decided to pair this iconic duo? Well, I guess we decided to focus on these two for our first episode as their lives follow a really similar trajectory. Both women had lived lives before they rose to be royal consorts and both are seen to have had immense power over their spouses which didn't endear them to the public and subsequently they've both been subject to heavy scrutiny and they had pretty spectacular falls from graces. Falls from graces? It's <laughs> pretty spectacular falls from grace. Sorry guys. Another random fact is that they both share a lot of names in common. So they both married Harry. So in case anyone didn't know, Harry was a pet name for Henry VIII. And of course, Prince Harry's real name is Henry. As well, both Anne and Meghan were fathered by a Thomas. And they also have significant Catherines in their lives. So we've got Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII's first wife, and Catherine Middleton, the wife of Prince Wills. Prince Wills. (laughs) But most significantly, they had a massive impact on royal life and British culture in general. They could be called trailblazers. Anne for her religious reform and Meghan for bringing feminism and a multicultural influence into the royal family. Becky, how exactly did Anne become queen? As many of us know, there was a queen in England already, wasn't there? There was indeed. She famously usurped Catherine of Aragon from Henry's heart and also from England's throne. Ouch. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty dark from Anne. So how did she manage to pull off such an impressive feat? Well, Anne came from the Howard family, so there were already opportunities open to her because they were a noble family in the land. She spent her teenage years in France where she received a good education and most importantly learned about fashion and how to cultivate her charms, which meant when she returned to England, she really stood out from the crowd and caught Henry's eye. Her father and uncle were also quite pushy, something that Meghan has also experienced, and they encouraged her to go after the king who at this point was desperate for an heir. So I guess you could say right place, right time for Anne. Josie, what was a young Meghan Markle like? I think Meghan was probably a force to be reckoned with, even from a young age. There is the most adorable clip online, and we'll try to share it in the show notes if we can figure out how. And it's of Meghan when she's 11 years old, being interviewed after writing a letter to Procter & Gamble about a sexist television advert on washing up liquid. So even at a young age, she's clearly very eloquent and ambitious and has a mind of her own. It's incredibly admirable. 
She seems to have been quite highly regarded during her early years in the film industry. Why do you think this view may have shifted? During my research, it was really easy to find directors' comments on Megan's professionalism and her strong work ethic. And she was also a strong advocate for women and African-American rights, as well as supporting numerous charities. And at this time, he seems to have been very well liked and highly regarded by the press. And I think the standards she was being held to were a lot less rigid. I tried to be quite academic and call this the Hollywood lens. Very fancy. (laughs) And so when she entered the royal family, she was put under this new lens and sort of a royal microscope, as it were whose standards, some might argue, are literally impossible to fulfill, particularly when you've already lived a life like Megan had. Yeah, I feel like very few people would be able to live up to those standards. And she already had a few things counting against her because she was divorced and African-American. So yeah, I feel like she was almost set up to fail from the start. Yeah. I mean, I find it a bit depressing and debilitating that she's often measured against Kate Middleton, sort of pitting them against one another. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think that'll be really interesting to dissect the royal standards for women later on. The moment Meghan and Harry's relationship went public, opinions were really divided in extreme. Every subject about her became highly controversial. Becky, as you already stated, her race, her political stance, her supporter of Hillary Clinton, right through to her being an ex-divorcee, were all up for grabs by the press, and it it was pretty ruthless, to be honest. I feel like we're starting to get to know them a little bit more, so now let's delve deeper into their similarities. Shall we begin with their weddings? Let's do it, Ellen. (laughs) So both these women were the subject of lavish celebrations, marking their entry into royalty. Becky, tell me about Anne's coronation. Yeah, so we don't really have any information on her wedding because she actually got married in secret in January 1533 because she'd already started sleeping with the king and he wanted to make sure that any kids they had were going to be legitimate. So we don't know a lot about that, but we do know about um, her coronation, which happened in June 1533. So this was her first kind of public outing to be shown to the subject of the land. And needless to say, she wasn't that popular. People loved Catherine of Aragon. She was held up as this paragon of queenship. So Henry's ministers actually had to pay people to lie in the streets and cheer for her, which is pretty pathetic and sad. I just feel bad for the woman. But needless to say, it was not the fairy tale affair of Meghan and Harry. It was basically a chance for Henry to say to the world that he'd moved on. And for Anne, this was the culmination of seven years hard graft and keeping herself under such tight control to get to the top spot. So she must have felt absolutely amazing on that day, even if it was a bit of a damp squib. (laughs) Josie, Megan's wedding to Harry was highly publicised and very extravagant. Could you tell me about this? So Megan and Harry tied the knot on the 19th of May in 2018, but this is another really spooky coincidence. And this was also the same day that Anne was beheaded in the Tower of London. What? Are you serious? <laughs> These women are clearly connected. <laughs> I wonder if Megan planned this and is secretly a massive Anne fan. I mean, aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> but moving back to the royal wedding. <laughs> After months, months of speculation, Megan walked down the aisle in a Givenchy dress at Windsor Castle in a ceremony that was watched by hundreds of millions on live television. Now, as we know, some aspects of the wedding were pretty controversial and received a lot of press, both negative and positive. 
from the cost to Megan's attire, right through to even the attendees. I remember there being quite a lot of furore in the media about the people that were invited. What was so controversial about the guest list? So I think part of it was around the choice not to invite any political leaders, particularly Theresa May and Donald Trump. And this is in contrast to Will's and Kate's wedding, where they hosted a large number of high-profile politicians. Instead, I think people found it quite controversial that they decided to invite celebrities such as George Clooney, Oprah Winfrey, Victoria Beckham, etc. And I, I think this was viewed quite negatively and pessimistically as some as a kind of ploy by Meghan to raise her public profile. I don't know if this is maybe a bit unfair as in comparison, while Will's and Kate's wedding, it wasn't quite as star-studded, but it definitely had a lot of high-profile celebrities, including Elton John and Joss Stone. So perhaps that's just what is to be expected at a modern-day royal wedding. Can I just say a couple of things about this? So A, I would rather have Oprah and George Clooney at my wedding than Donald Trump and Theresa May. They're going to be a lot more fun to hang out with. And B, Wills and Kate, their wedding was the wedding of the heir to the throne. So obviously you expect that it has to kind of follow all the protocols. But Harry is kind of not a minor member of the royal family, but how far in line is he to the throne? Like sixth or something? I can't remember. Josie, do you know? I thought he was even further than that now. Yeah. But I kind of feel like it's their prerogative to invite who they want. And I feel like their party would have been more fun. Just saying. And I guess it would be yeah. the attendees that they did because they were celebrities in their own right. Megan having been an actress living in LA and had a lot of connections. Yeah exactly. yeah, exactly. And I think when I was looking into it, it was actually seen as not appropriate for them to invite politicians because then it might show that they were perhaps siding with someone which isn't appropriate because neither of them, as you say, they're not in line to the throne. It's not really their place to be political. Yeah, exactly. They have to be neutral. So what's more neutral than Oprah? Everyone loves her. <laughs> moving to the dress he was a fan um i'm just gonna be put it out there this might be an unpopular opinion but i was not a fan of the dress i loved the detail of her veil though which was absolutely amazing i thought when she was walking down the aisle and that sun was streaming in and highlighting it she did look absolutely amazing so ethereal and what was so great about the veil was it told a story because it had the 55 flowers embroidered on it from the countries in the Commonwealth. So I felt like that was the showstopper of the day. That was quite clever and a beautiful touch, but I guess it also elevated what was otherwise quite a simple dress by royal wedding standards. And another aspect that was quite controversial was the tiara. I'm sure you all saw it in the press headlines. She didn't get her first pick. I think she had originally asked for, according to well-resourced news articles such as the Daily Mail. Apparently, she originally asked for an emerald tiara, and I think this was perhaps worn by Princess Eugenie on her wedding day. And I understand that there might be some parallels there with Anne with regards to royal jewels and controversies. Yes, Anne definitely outdivered Meghan with this one. She infamously insisted that Catherine of Aragon be stripped of her royal jewels and re-gifted to herself, which, of course, Henry obliged. So they're both kind of obsessed, I think, with having the best. <laughs> yeah, in addition, she was crowned with the crown of St. Edward, which up until then had only been reserved for the coronations of male monarchs. Quite a statement. Yeah, that says a lot about how Henry viewed her, that he was willing to put a man's crown on her head. And it probably says a lot about the regard he had for how smart she was. Like, she was a real consort, someone that would actually give him advice. So, yeah, I think that says a lot. I feel like it smacks his insecurity and his desperation for her to be taken seriously, considering that she received a lukewarm reception upon her coronation. 
that's such an interesting way to view it and I hadn't even thought of that yeah absolutely you're right you're welcome <laughs> uh, JC you mentioned the cost of the wedding just out of interest how much was it please guess oh god <laughs> now the awkward bit where an art student tries desperately work out arithmetic <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, what is a lot of money? <laughs> um, oh, God. Um, I'm going to say something which I feel would be so far from the actual real figure. Uh, six million? <laughs> so far off. Oh. <laughs> I feel like it was not six million. Um, I'm going to go for, okay, I'm going to use Ellen as a, as a marker. I'm oh, going to go for like, 12? You both could not be further from the truth. The total cost of their wedding celebration in British pounds was 23.7 million. Grab every penny. <laughs> yeah, I had a great um, day. <laughs> do we know how this compared to Anne and Henry's wedding? I mean, don't know about the wedding. I think it was a key affair, but I think in terms of the coronation, there are some records about some rooms at the Tower of London being redecorated for the event, which cost the equivalent of a million pounds in today's money. So a big spend there, but nothing on the scale of Harry and Meghan. Another interesting fact, and something I didn't know until I was researching for this project, is that $112,000 in profits from the BBC broadcast of Harry and Meghan's wedding will be donated to a very important charity, Feeding Britain during the current coronavirus crisis. Oh, really? That is so interesting. But how, how have they still got that money? It was two years ago. I'm just wondering. Are they doing <laughs> just, just for situations like this. Yeah. It's good to know someone was planning ahead, eh? <laughs> well, thank you, Megan and Harry and BBC. <laughs> yeah. So now that we've explored that entry into real life, let's consider their influence and power as women highly influential positions. Becky, what was Anne's brief period in power like? What did she bring to the Tudor dynasty? I would say her greatest impact was on shaping the religion of the country. She was a fierce believer in the new Protestant faith and her influence and access to reformist texts educated Henry and ultimately led to his decision to break with Rome and make himself supreme head of the Church of England. It's hard to quantify how massive this was at the time. In Tudor times, religion literally ruled every aspect of everyone's lives. So a shift to a new way of worship that did away with old practices, saints' days, etc., and crucially allowed individuals to connect with God without the aid of a priest, you could say that this was the turning point from the medieval world becoming the modern world. So yeah, for England, I'd say she's a pretty big deal. And the other significant thing that she achieved is she ensured the future of the dynasty with the birth of her daughter, who went on to become Elizabeth I. So we have to give her credit for that, even if Henry didn't at the time. Anne was obviously really smart and forward thinking and innovative. And that's something her daughter inherited. So I would say we need to thank her for her excellent genes. <laughs> Josie, can you tell us about Meghan's influence as a member of the royal family? I think this is a really tricky question to dissect particularly as Megan has actually already stepped down from her royal role but despite having done that I don't actually think her influence has necessarily decreased it's really interesting to compare her position with Anne Anne's position in power was during a time when women were generally in the background and the only way to really 
gain any power or influence was by marrying someone very powerful and obviously who's more powerful than the king. And Meghan's time as a royal was instead during a period where arguably women have never been more powerful in their own right. At the time of her marriage, we had Theresa May as the second female British prime minister. And Meghan, in respects, really epitomizes the modern women. She's very careers focused. She's got a mind of her own and she has a family and she's been pretty successful at it. I think this is a breakaway from the traditional royal and British family politics. And so rather unfortunately, I think this is actually raised quite a bit of criticism. It's interesting that motherhood, for very different reasons, seems to have played a factor in both women's exits from royal life. And I sort of done exits there in inverted commas. Yeah, I feel like it's really significant for both of them. And sadly, at the time for Anne, the most important duty of a queen, in fact, really her only duty was to produce a royal heir, a male heir. And Henry thought she'd failed to do this by only having one healthy daughter with all of her other pregnancies ending in miscarriage. So I would say her final miscarriage was maybe the kind of straw that broke the camel's back that led to her demise. I completely agree. And I think in a very unfortunate way, the coverage of Meghan's pregnancy almost mirrors these outdated views about royal women, that their only way to be successful is to produce a royal offspring. Mm. Yeah. What were both their experiences of pregnancy and motherhood like? Well, Anne was under an unfathomable amount of pressure during her pregnancies, which may well have been the reason why she suffered several miscarriages after the birth of Elizabeth. However, she still knew that she was at her most powerful while she was seen to be pregnant and carrying a child. So she made sure to flaunt that around the court while she had it. So she was famous for cradling her bump and drawing a lot of tension to her changing body and talking very loudly about her cravings, as done to great effect by Natalie Dormer in the TV show The Tudors, where she goes, oh, I just really need an apple. And you're like, oh, she's pregnant. Oh, my God. So, yeah. <laughs> And she wasn't the only one who was famous for touching her bump. And this is probably the most ridiculous criticism that made the headlines about Meghan during her pregnancy. The constant obsession with the fact that Meghan was touching that bump. And for some bizarre reason, this seemed to annoy a lot of people. Yeah. I'm not quite sure why. On top of that as well, her fertility was also highly scrutinised, something Anne will have also faced. And this is because they were deemed to be slightly older than the norm for royal mothers. So Anne was probably around 31, although her birth date's not actually known. And Meghan was 37 at the time. And so during Meghan's pregnancy, I remember there was lots of rumours circulating about whether her bump was fake or that if she'd paid large amounts to go to a fertility clinic, not that it should really matter. Can I just interject with a quick question here? Do we think that the world has really moved on from seeing women's primary function as producing life, given what we've just kind of learned about Megan being scrutinised during her pregnancy? I think sadly not. I think in general, it has moved on. But I think the problem is, is that the royal family and royal politics is so far behind. Yeah, I think... That's right. And I think that's partly why Harry and Meghan have left the royal family. They've expressed their view that they think it's an antiquated system. And I think that really came to light during her pregnancy and also the way in which the media handled her ability as a mother, criticising the way that she held Archie and her request for privacy in the lead up to his birth and around his christening. 
Yeah, that felt like when it got the most heightened, the press coverage, for mm-hmm. sure. And I imagine being a new mum and dealing with all the emotions that that brings, imagine that kind of scrutiny piled on top. It's no wonder that she was like, I'm out, I'm done. So neither of these women lasted in the royal family for long. In fact, another parallel, both only stayed in their respective roles for roughly a thousand days. Becky, what do you think caused Anne to fall so quickly from grace and give her the unfortunate name, the Queen of a Thousand Days? In 1536, Cromwell made a decisive move against Anne at the bequest of Henry. So Henry had basically already decided that he was fed up with her by this point. And accusations of adultery and even of plotting against the king's life were levied against her. Her brother and a small group of courtiers were also accused with her. And Henry VIII, notoriously prone to suspicion and now besotted with one of Anne's ladies-in-waiting, Jane Seymour, ignored the Queen's protestations of innocence and she was arrested and taken to the Tower on the 2nd of May 1536. And from there on in, it was really quite quick. So a sham trial followed this, filled with Anne's enemies and chaired by her own uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, which is pretty shocking. They found her guilty and she awaited her execution in the same royal apartments where just three years before she had awaited her coronation, which has a pretty tragic poignancy about it, I think. Oh, doesn't it? And of course, in contrast, Meghan left the royal family by choice. Why do you think she decided to break away from the public life? I know we discussed this a bit earlier, but I think it'd be good to sort of delve in a bit more. So I think since she and Harry became publicly official she'd been at the centre of intense scrutiny and this really climaxed just before her wedding when photos of her letters to her father were leaked to the press and this was also followed by strange outbursts from her other family members quite significantly her half-sister and this basically climaxed with only her mother Doria attending the wedding. The criticism was so intense that Harry actually breaking with royal protocol openly criticised the press which I think also had a really bad backlash from the public. And he was comparing the hounding of Meghan to the intense scrutiny that his mother Diana faced when she was at the height of her fame. And this all came to a head during a tour in South Africa where Meghan was interviewed and she was visibly distressed when the reporter asked if she was okay. And I remember watching that and I really do think that no matter what you think of her or the royal family, it was really distressing to watch. Yeah, it really well, was. Then she came under criticism. It was suggested that she was milking it, uh, that there were crocodile tears. This is the problem, right? Because she's an actress, people never, well, they, they, the argument is they never know when she's being real. But mm. I would say if you're watching that, she'd have to be a pretty good actress. Like, why would you want to break down on camera in front of the whole world? Like, that doesn't, you don't just do that to milk something. You, you're doing that because you're actually crumbling. It was really awful to watch. I do feel for Megan, there's no way that she can win. Whenever she is in front of the public, then she's milking it. She's trying to get attention. When she retreats, then again, that's seen as some ploy to manipulate her relationship with Harry. She really can't win. Yeah. And when, when she retreats, it's almost like, oh my God, where have you gone? Like, we still want to know everything about you. You're a public figure. We deserve to know everything that's going on in your life. So you're right. It's weird. She can't win. It's pretty sad. Yeah. And this is all culminated in her and Harry deciding to step down from real life at the end of March 2020. Yeah. And of course, there's also the court case that's going on at the moment. Harry and Meghan are taking the press 
to court over the leakage of her intimate letters to her father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. I don't think they'll win, sadly. Part of the criticism that may have led to their downfalls was also over royal spending and the treatment of staff. I mean, I think this was definitely a lower order priority in terms of Anne's downfall, but she certainly wasn't well loved by her staff. And they, her and Henry, were not shy about splashing the cash. I know that when she became queen, she ordered that all of his palaces, all of the stonework and all of the stained glass and everything that had anything with Catherine of Aragon's emblem on it be replaced. So that alone would have cost an absolute bomb. And she was also infamously fiery, so she had a pretty hot temper. So I certainly would not have wanted to be in her line of fire if I was one of her ladies-in-waiting. And uh, like Anne, Meghan was also criticised not just over the cost of the royal wedding, but also her taste in designer clothes. So there's been quite a lot of rumours as well about Meghan being difficult to work with, with several staff members resigning while under her employment. And there's a rather unfortunate quote by Harry, who said, what Meghan wants, Meghan gets. <laughs> yeah. And I think Henry was probably equally willing to give Anne whatever she wanted, particularly in the early stages of their relationship. Ellen, don't you have a great fact about Charles's nickname for Meghan? Yes. He gave her the name Tunston on account of her strong will. <laughs> <laughs> Tunstall is a type of metal which is famously resilient. I suppose it's a metal be described as resilient. <laughs> it's an unyielding substance, and I think that's why <laughs> he gifted that name to Megan. So it's clear that despite their departure from the royal family, both these women have had and will continue to have a lasting impact. Yeah, I think the made-for-TV film Harry and Meghan, A Royal Romance, has certainly solidified their positions as cultural icons. Oh, God. Yeah. Did you actually watch that? I I did force myself to watch a tiny bit of it, but it just as homework for this, I couldn't sit through the whole thing, guys. It was really awful. Um, what was it like? Really what so, was it like? Basically, if you're into subpar acting and um, an Aussie prince, Harry, then go for it. He, he he literally can't get the Aussie out of his voice. So I'm like, guys, surely you could have cast somebody else. But basically, it's not an earth-shattering portrayal of the pair. And unfortunately, I think we'll have to wait until they're dead so that The Crown or some other highbrow show can cover it. Because, I mean, it has been a great story to follow, but I think the made-for-TV film was a little bit too close to the fact to be able to do an, a kind of good retelling. Becky, you've sold it to me. That's going to be my next lockdown flick. As <laughs> so, um, I, I was saying, like, the best bit... Oh, I, I told you this outside the podcast, but anyway, the, be- the best bit is when the Queen gathers all her staff in, in Buckingham Castle and goes, My grandson has decided to marry a divorced African-American woman. Is everyone on board? And I'm like, why would she ask her staff that? That's just not something that would happen. It's just very funny. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Please continue. So as we know, there have been many film adaptions of Anne's life. Which actress is your favourite portrayal? And Ellen, we all know I'm directing this question at you because I know you're a mega fan and I know you've already got your list prepared. (laughs) (laughs) And I do. Yes, I've whiled away many hours watching Tudor dramas featuring Anne. But to avoid boring everybody, I'll just give you my top two. So my favourite all-time depiction is that by Claire Foy, who played Anne in the BBC adaptation of Wolf Hall. Uh, She has a marvellous pronunciation of the name Cromwell. And if you haven't seen it, she says it as Cromwell. (laughs) 
<laughs> Why? <laughs> it's ludicrous. Uh, and my second favourite is that by Dorothy Tootin, who played Anne in a 1970s TV show, Henry VIII and his six wives. She's very flamboyant in it and she constantly has one eyebrow raised and as somebody who can't raise an eyebrow it really sort of knocked my socks off love it <laughs> loser <laughs> i feel like my fave is also 1970s Anne, but she did the role in the film version of the tv show that you were talking about ellen and it was mm-hmm. charlotte rampling she's just so sexy i feel like if i was henry i would a hundred percent break with rome to be with charlotte rampling and if you had to choose between either Natalie Dormer or Natalie Portman in their portrayals of Anne, which would you pick? Dormer, hands down. She brings fire to that role, but Portman was just really bland, I thought. Oh, Portman's awful, but she did it fantastic in green. She really yeah. made me like, understand the green sleeves. Oh, yeah. Fair play. Her and Scarlet were quite a pair. <laughs> Yeah. It was um, quite lesbic, <laughs> despite the matter of this. Yeah, I wonder if Henry had any like twin fantasies about those two. Oh, he definitely <laughs> did. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, moving away from Sordid Tudor Talk, both these women were interested in fashion and art. What do you think would be their biggest fashion footprint? Great word, Ellen, or phrase. Ooh, <laughs> Love it. So I feel like for Anne, her biggest influence would be that she introduced French fashion into the English court with French style hoods. So these are the little kind of hats or headdresses that Tudor women wore. And the French hood was rounded and kind of pushed the hair back and was quite sexy. And Catherine of Aragon was a bit more traditional. She favoured the gable hood, which was like a big box around your head. So yeah, definitely less sexy. So I think she'll always be remembered as being very fashionable and people envied her and emulated her a lot. And I also know I'm shoehorning this in, but I just want to quickly talk about cod pieces, guys. Oh, the floor is yours. I know she. we can't credit Anne with the cod piece, but I just want to delve into the mysterious world of the cod piece. I don't get it. Like, why do they need to have a big fake dick on the front of their costumes? I just don't know, where are you supposed to look when someone's wearing that? Like, was it just acceptable to stare at people's penises all the time? What, is it not now? (laughs) Helen Minx. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it was maybe a display of virility for a man. Like, oh, I've got a big cod piece. I'm so fertile. Come and get me, ladies. Or I don't know. But then I also think to myself, they look really big and impressive on the outside. But I'm sure the second you got beneath that, a little bit disappointing. Oh, especially with Henry. <laughs> Steering the conversation away from bitter disappointment, I think it's difficult to say what Meghan's impact on fashion will be. It's still very early days for her. Although the low net bodice was favoured by Anne, and I think it can be seen in Meghan's Givenchy wedding dress. Oh. Interesting fact. So this was influenced by Audrey Hepburn's wedding dress, which was also designed by Givenchy. And that in turn was influenced by 1500s tapestry called The Lady and the Unicorn, which may, okay, I'm completely making this up, by the way, guys, but it could possibly have been seen by Anne. So all I'm saying is who influenced who? Ooh, wow. Or perhaps I'm clutching at threads, pardon the pun. No, you know, you go for it. <laughs> that is such a great fact. I know. I'd like to think they did. 
or rather Anne did see it. I mean, it can't be a coincidence that Megan based her dress off Audrey Hepburn, who based it off this tapestry, and she had it on the same day as Anne's execution. There's just too many coincidences here, guys. She's definitely a fan of Anne. I think we can say that. I also think the tapestry was French, and obviously Anne spent a lot of time in France, so... You're only solidifying this, Josie. Seriously, it's yeah. real. Basically, this is fact now. <laughs> it is gospel. <laughs> so we've touched upon it just now, but uh, both Anne and Meghan were notable patrons of the arts. And this is another bizarre connection, but they both had a passion for calligraphy. I can vouch for this having seen the YouTube clip that we talked about earlier with Meghan's handwriting when she wrote into Procter & Gamble. Her handwriting was absolutely beautiful. And also, bizarrely, this was one of the weird criticisms that the press made against her when her letters were leaked to her father, as they, for some reason, thought that her amazing cursive handwriting was proof that they had been faked. Although why you would get a professional cursive writer to fake your letters, I don't know. Well, interestingly, she made money on the side at university by providing people with calligraphic texts. As for Anne, during her time as queen, she collected a number of manuscripts but the highly decorative works on paper would have kind of like contained calligraphy. See, I mean, there are so many parallels, guys. So now for the fun part, the quick fire round. I'm going to fire some questions at JC and Becky about the two women we've been looking at today. Right, number one. What has been the most outrageous scene-stealing moment for Anne? I think it's her wearing yellow on Catherine of Aragon's death. So although this was officially the colour of mourning for the Spanish court, or at least this is the cover story that Anne used, it's pretty likely that she was just absolutely jubilant that her rival had finally popped her clogs. So I think that just speaks so much to how smart Anne was, that she knew that she could get away with that kind of move, but really she's just dancing on somebody's grave in a yellow dress. And Josie, what was Megan's outrageous theme-stealing moment? This is a hard one, but I think it's probably Megan kind of announcing her pregnancy at Eugenie's wedding. And I know she didn't really announce it, but she wore a coat the entire time in comparison to what she usually wore. It was a pretty big giveaway. And then I believe she actually formally revealed it the day after, which is pretty harsh, if you ask me. Yeah, that was a bit dark. <laughs> what is the most outrageous rumour about them? For Anne, it's definitely the witch rumour. It's a biggie. It's stuck around for a while. So it was basically suggested that she was a witch with six fingers. But there's no evidence for this. And it's probably just another way of history discrediting her. For Megan, there is one completely bizarre rumour that apparently she's related to Jack the Ripper. But I'm not even going to go into that. (laughs) (laughs) But there's another quite saucy rumour that went round that at her first wedding, apparently she had weed party favour bags. And while this might have just been a rumour made to sort of show off the wild streak within her, it actually might not be that controversial in LA because it's basically legal there. So... (laughs) (laughs) Now, we know Megan has an interest in astrology. She's been seen a number of times wearing astrological pendants, which brings me to ask... What do we think their star signs tells us about these two women? So Anne is a cancer, we think, but obviously we don't actually know when she was born, but that's kind of the closest. And this star sign has the attributes of being highly intuitive people. They can instinctively pick up on the energy of a room, but they're also extremely self-protective, moody and unfathomable. And I feel like that just sums her up to a T. 
Megan is a Leo, perhaps unsurprisingly, and I have this quote, you can take the world on as your stage and thrive in an environment where you are the centre of attention. And I think that says it all. (laughs) The press will be all over that if they actually made that connection. (laughs) What would their Instagram accounts be like? So we know Megan has had to close her public account, although apparently she has a secret one somewhere. But I think if she was actually allowed to have one, maybe she will reopen one now that she's left the royal family. But I think it would probably be centred around yoga, clean living. I'm pretty sure she's a Goop Gwyneth Paltrow fan. So I would imagine there'd be lots of green smoothies on there, some strange cleansing methods. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. I mean, Meghan and Harry's Sussex Instagram is unbearable enough, so I can't even imagine. <laughs> Speaking of cleansing, you definitely have a Daily Mirror, Daily Mail cleansing. <laughs> yeah, I think for Anne, it's obviously hard to say what her Instagram would be like, but I just think it would be loads of pics of the air she produced. So I think she'd just be one of those really overactive Insta moms, like showing off about what Elizabeth is doing all the time. Oh, but she wouldn't include Mary. Mary would be taking the pictures of her. Yeah, Mary would just be like, or you'd occasionally see her like in the background looking really glum. Sulking. Yeah. Who would you rather be stuck in the lift with? Anne. Anne. Ah, it's Megan for me, I'm afraid, ladies. Anne would feel a bit shover and she certainly would engage in conversation. What song do you think best represents them? Um, I think for Anne, You Should See Me in a Crown by Billie Eilish. Eilish? Eilish? Guys, I think it's Eilish. Eilish okay yeah because that was her ultimate goal and she did actually achieve it so once she was in it I'm sure she'd want to show it off I struggle with this question but I think for Megan it would either be it's my life by no doubt just because I feel like she's trying to take back control or and this is a rogue one guys Fergie London Bridge because it just reminds me of like an American really wanting to show their love for the UK, but just getting it so wrong. <laughs> oh, That's a good call. So apt. <laughs> and that's a wrap, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in to the first ramblings of these three fledgling podcasters. This is our first stab at a podcast, so we welcome any feedback. Or if you have some fun facts to share with us about Anne or Megan, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at femfilespodcast at gmail.com. Join us next time when we'll be discussing Marie Antoinette and Kylie Jenner. Femfiles. Femfiles. Fem Files